Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a special archival panel discussion from the 52nd New York Film Festival about the late and great filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. Listen to the panelists, including the New Yorker's Richard Brody, former MoMA curator Lawrence Kardish, Goodbye to Language star Eloise Godet, and critic Max Nelson discuss Godard's work and career with moderator Eric Cohen from IndieWire. Tickets to the 60th New York Film Festival, taking place from September 30th to October 16th, go on sale Monday, September 19th at noon. Don't miss this anniversary milestone edition and explore the lineup at filmlink.org NYFF. Everybody here has different understandings of, of who Godard is. You might say that Godard is, is a personal connection that, you know, in some ways is sort of abstract for some people. But uh, Eloise, for you, it was um, obviously a practical connection because he directed you in this film. Uh, I can only imagine what it must have been like to uh, audition for a role like that. But maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about sort of what your relationship was to Godard's films uh, before you were involved with this and and how they evolved over the course of shooting Goodbye to Language. I think I was like um, a lot of people here in the room, like completely fan of a lot of his movies, early movies. I didn't know... Honestly, I didn't know the 90s movies. So I discovered it before when I heard that I could meet him. I watched a lot of movies, actually, a lot, a lot. I went to a festival that was doing a retrospective and watched everything I could. So No blind spots. Yeah. And there was um, not really an audition. Uh, it was just an interview with his assistant for... 44, 45 minutes filmed and uh, with a short movie. And then that was it. I was uh, chosen. And then it changed his mind because uh, for production reasons, it was easier to be with an actress from Switzerland. So I was really disappointed. And then it didn't work out very well. So he said, okay, I'm going to meet Eloise again. And then we met for the first time. Uh, during half an hour talking very simply. I was pretty stressed, but he made it so just natural and and easy that I just went out of this uh, uh, meeting completely happy and uh, jumping all over the place like, he's just a nice guy, it's going to be fantastic. I wasn't sure at all that he would take me for good, but then the day after I had another appointment and... Yeah, that began like that. Saying he's much cuddlier than meets the eye. Can I, can I ask a quick question? Eloise, did you ever ask him why he chose you? Um, actually, no. <laughs> he never told you? Uh, no. Is that typical, Richard, from your research? Depends. Uh, some, some people, he said, you know, it's real voice. Or... At the, um, when very, I met him, I was, I was very looking like Anna Karina with the, you know, the, like that. But he told me, no, <laughs> make, make them grow. Because, I don't want that. <laughs> because you can see the interview process source in, in Eloge de l'Amour. You know, the way he, people are reading texts. That's, in effect, part of the audition. He wants to... Yeah, he, I just had to read one page. To so, yeah. so tell us a little bit, what, what was it like to be directed by him once the, the shooting actually began? Uh, he was really precise about everything, like uh, just like uh, music uh, sheets. 
like you just say one word, you just do three steps, you do one more word, you just push, push the table, then you turn. It was just that, but no psychological background, nothing. If, and if I asked questions, he was teasing me, saying, no, you won't have any questions. <laughs> so I couldn't. When people ask you to t what this movie actually means, you have plausible deniability. Actually, would you be able to say what it, what it means? <laughs> it's really difficult to have just one story about this movie. So, Larry, uh, your experience with Godard is, is, was very different from, say, being an actor in one of his films. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on sort of how that evolved over the years? Uh, sure. We, uh, to me, Godard, I mean, is a brilliant uh, artist. Uh, and a, for me, a totally non-narrative uh, filmmaker. At, the, at this moment in his, in his career. Uh, we, at, at, the, at MoMA, I worked there for 44 years, and we um, commissioned a work by Godard called, uh, which ended up being called The Old Place. And my experience with Godard has been one of kind of constant betrayal, in a, in a, in a way. Uh, I mean, he, he is not someone to be fully, in an economic sense, trusted. <laughs> we had, uh, but our experience with Godard went, you know, started before that when we did a major film ret retrospective called Son Image, in which we had uh, my colleague Mary Lee Bandy published, you know, uh, edited, a, edited a book about him. I got together all the films and videos at that point, and it was a kind of, it was a labor of love. And he was supposed to come to the opening, and the night before the show opened, we received a 16-page fax <laughs> saying why I'm not coming. You know, and I, you know, I, I found the explanation somewhat tendentious, and we were in 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 a, in a, in a fury. Uh, but the show was a great success, you know, because the works are so powerful and and, and original. Then uh, I. Uh, had a contract signed by him. Colin McCabe and I went to roll to have him sign this, this contract for a work that he was to deliver on the occasion of the millennium. And, and he was going to, the work was going to be made in 35 millimeter. It was going to be at least an hour. He was going to deliver it with subtitles. He was going to come to New York to shoot uh, at the Museum of Modern Art and with the woman who was basically the trustee who financed financed it. None of that happened, and you know. And what was delivered was something else. I thought it was a diminution of what he'd agreed to do. Um, and not only that, he um, he basically gave the work to a DVD producer elsewhere, not respecting MoMA's copyright, but taking the idea that, you know, in France there is the artist's right, there's the moral right of, of, of the artist. So there, there are a lot of kind of questions about working with Godard, but he does deliver something uh, original and strong, and, and the work, even though it is, for me, emotionally dis disengaged, intellectually it's very much engaged. So, Richard, uh, one of the things that Larry seems to be hitting on is that, you know, he's not the easiest guy to work with, even though, you know, the end result sort of speaks for itself. And yet, as Eloise says, you know, there's a precision to the way that he sort of puts his vision together. So, 
given the fact that you scrutinized his entire body of work for the the book that you wrote, you know, how do you sort of reconcile those two things? You know, I mean, it's 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 very challenging to kind of collaborate with this person in a medium that's sort of based on collaboration to some degree, and yet the precision is is al always seems to be sort of intact to some degree. There are many possible interpretations of the term collaboration, and I think Godard has his own ideas on the subject. Um, and I, I don't mean that ironically. Um, he's always sought a particular kind of engagement or involvement on the part of people he's worked with, um, but not necessarily the kind of collaboration that is reflected in the classic director-actor relationship of defining a character, possibly imp improvising in the course of a shoot, but more of an intellectual engagement. Um, with the material of the film, the text that the film is based on, the underlying subject of the film, even the title of the film. Um, you know, for instance, one of the things that interests me is in, 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 in other shoots of Godard's, he would, you know, spend time talking with the actors, you know, in the lobby of the hotel, and it's very, it's imaginable that he would say to you, well, what does Adieu au langage mean to you? Like, well, what does it mean to you to be in a film called Adieu au langage? That's exactly the sort of thing that he very often did in particularly the films of the 80s, 90s, um, where he wanted actors to be engaged with him in the, so the, let's say, the ideation, the intellectual creation of the film. Um, you know, there's that wonderful line in this film, you know, I, I detest characters. He detests characters. It doesn't mean he detests people. On the contrary, it's that he has particular ideas about what constitutes the cinema and how his actors are supposed to project identity and ideas in a movie, um, which is both based on but different from what happens in the classical narrative cinema. Um, all a long way of saying that, you know, for instance, Eloise, I, 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 I'd like to plug a piece that Eloise wrote for Cahiers du Cinema, a wonderful uh, diary of, of the shoot. And you know, she talks about something that's been going on with Godard from the very start of his career, namely, you know, 99% of the shoots that exist have a schedule where the actors and the equipment and the crew are all supposed to show up at a particular location at a particular date and time and shoot what they're scheduled to shoot in the script at that point. Um, Godard has never really thought of shooting a movie like that. He has, to use a fairly simple metaphor, thinks of it as more like being an artist, meaning if on a particular day you don't feel like painting the apple but the pear, or you don't feel like painting anything at all, well then that's what you do. And part of the, or what you don't do. And part of the, part of the, part of the process is economic, which is to say he learned very early on that you can't control your shoot schedule unless you control the money. You know, so for instance, just to give an example on uh, Soigne et Droite, which is one of my favorite films, it's from the mid-80s. Mid Half the budget went to the shooting of one scene that ran about 10 minutes. It was an airplane scene, and rather than shoot in a studio, they rented an airplane and shot, you know, every day, twice a day, going and coming between Paris and I can't remember which city in the south of France, and they had about a half hour to shoot, and so they shot an hour a day for a month, and that was, you know, half the budget of the film. <laughs> And this scene was 10 minutes or so. Um, but so the point, so collaboration, um, his precision is intellectual. His precision is like he wants gestures. He wants an actor to read a line. He wants an actor to read a line in a straightforward way. He wants a gesture. But there's something very classical about this. I mean, I'm sorry for going on so long. But one, one, one quick thing. If you, like, 
Fritz Lang did the same thing. You know, Fritz Lang was not the kind of guy who would speak at length about motivation with his characters. Hitchcock was not the kind of guy who would speak at great length with his actors, rather, about motivation. He wanted them to take three steps, turn to the left, say the line, take a step to the right, and look up. And when Godard does this, people think he's weird. When Lang does it, or when Hitchcock does it, well, they're being classical. But I think that Godard is not being weird. I think he's, in fact, being extremely classical. And that in this film, parenthetically, there's something amazingly classical. In a way, something more classical than there has been in a lot of his films for a while. Max, do you feel similarly that this is actually a classical film, despite murmurs to the contrary out there? I think it's a good case to be made for that. And especially that it's kind of aping what we might call a very classical genre. I mean, the elegy, I mean, which he's been kind of working with for at least 25 years, possibly before. I mean, I would date it at least back to King Lear. Um, you can make a case for passion as kind of being the start of the tendency in his, in his films to always be kind of announcing the death of something, announcing the death of something. I mean, and for a long time, I think the thing that has been at an end in his films is to some degree Western civilization itself, um, the whole kind of Western civilization. Um, but what's going on, I think, or has been going on for a long time in his relatively recent recent work is to stage the film as a kind of elegy, announcing an end, and then instead of stopping there, try to stage a resurrection of civilization, of cinema and cinema technique. Um, and in that sense, I think the films do kind of have this strong classical element because in some sense they constitute an announcement at the cinema and an attempt to bring the cinema back to something like its origins or something like its beginnings. Um, in this one, actually, I think there's a kind of departure from that. Um, I think the clue to the departure starts in the title. It starts in goodbye to, in, in him announcing goodbye to language itself, um, which I think puts this kind of what we might call a redemptive prospect, kind of project or a messianic prospect kind of in jeopardy. Um, I'm not worried that he's completely abandoned that project or abandoned Western, Western civilization, but I think there is a turning away. I think you get that even by looking at just the comparison between this film and film Socialism, his previous film, which was such a kind of globe-trotting cosmopolitan movie, kind of exposed to so many different places and continents and cultures, whereas this one was mostly in his backyard. Um, and that, I think, is revealing. Um, but I'm not sure what that May I say something? Yeah, I, I think that the title is definitely ironic, since language plays a certain, a very strong part, and it's more like Puissance de la parole, which he also said almost goodbye to the language. But I want to reinforce what Richard said about uh, about Godard as the artist, because before we had our experiences with Godard, our negative experiences with Godard, I had a uh, telephone conversation with him, and with, and this was before video, and he was saying that what he would like is that if one of MoMA's trustees would give him a million dollars or so. He would make a, a, war, a film for this person, and this person would undoubtedly have a screening room in his or her house, and then could do with this work whatever he or she would want to do, just like a painting. You know, just like an, you buy a painting, you keep it at home, you, you, you exhibit it. And now this is what happens with you know, a lot of video art. But he was the first person to articulate that. I was horrified because I thought the nature of cinema is that you share it with other people. But he said, no, no, if someone gave me the money, I'd make, I would take the money, and even if I would only use a small portion of it to make the work, <laughs> they would get my name. That, 
I just want to, so, so I want to address what Max, Max said, because I, I actually think the, I, I'm sorry, the opposite. I think, I, I love the fact that you use the word resurrection. I think you're exactly right. Um, but I think that this is actually a remarkably, let's say, resurrectional work. I think that, uh, you know, goodbye to language, hello to cinema. Um, you know, language for Godard has a parody. He, does, he doesn't mean goodbye, like, goodbye poetry. He doesn't mean goodbye Solzhenitsyn. He means goodbye chit-chat. <laughs> you know, good, goodbye to the way that language is used on television, to use the expression that he's so often... I mean, look at the end of this film. I mean, it's actually an amazingly redemptive ending. I mean, he's, he's, so, many of his films, he eat, so many of his films, he eats his young at the end. Yes. And this one, on the contrary, he's gentle, he's giving a, a lesson, he's, he's restoring an old-fashioned technique and sending a young person gently off to create, which is not the way he has generally looked at young creators in, in his earlier films. That, that's uh, true. Oh, sorry. I just want to make sure to work Heloise into this conversation because we're getting really deep into the text itself. I get it. You talking just a little too sp fast for me, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> But otherwise I get it and that's very interesting. Let's keep going. I, well, I, I, one thing I would bring up is that the, the legacy of this film has been a fascinating one since the first screening at Cannes where someone shouted Godard forever at the, at before the film began and then there was applause during a key moment in the way that he used 3D. So I'm curious what surprised you about the outcome of the film itself, you know, having participated in its creation but at the same time, you know, being able to watch it now from a distance. During the process, during the filming itself? Afterwards. Afterwards. Um, well, uh, it wasn't. Uh, I, uh, can you reformulate the question? I don't know if I get it. Really. Did the film look the way that you expected it to? Was it the film yeah, that you remember? Yeah, actually, yes, because I had a script big like that with a page of text and a page of images. And it was exactly what he had to look like, but it never really looks uh, be, uh, exactly the same because the editing is fantastic and doing the whole movie, the sound also, the sound editing is so surprising. You cannot guess what he's going to do with your voice, cutting your voice from your image. We had a lot of scene shots that are not in the movie, but the, the sounds are still here, the voices are there. So I was surprised about the results in, at some point, but uh, not that much about the, co the, the, the general uh, ideas and everything. So the ideas, maybe we should get into that a little bit more. He wouldn't tell you what it means, but what does it mean to you? Uh, to me, it was a story of a uh, couple, uh, you know, couple having trouble and going into deep fight. Uh, I almost had a scene w where I had to kill my uh, lover, but he he was kind of suddenly shy. I didn't want to make it anymore, as if it was too violent for him at that point. It was supposed to be blood. I think in the second part of the movie, there's blood that's, yeah, in the bathtube. But uh, for us, the first couple, it was like, mm, I don't feel it right now. Maybe he was too tired or too... Uh, emotional about that, but he wanted us not to be that violent to each other. <laughs> so we uh, we mostly were the couple that had problem uh, to express their feelings, but not really fighting fighting to death. That was pretty optimistic for me. 
It's not that it's melancholic, but not that pessimistic. Do you know how he originally described the film? When he first described this project, I believe it was in 2009 or 2010. And he said, it's a story of a couple who are not getting along, and then they get a dog, and the dog moderates between them and brings them together. We never saw the dog. We were supposed to have him here, but we were really, really disappointed. It was two blocks away at Anne-Marie Emilville's house. But he was either sick or tired or not in the mood. We never got to see him. So but you described an abstract concept. Yeah, a very abstract. <laughs> Eloise described something amazing in her diary. One of the key scenes in the film, you describe as something that he came up with on the spot that wasn't in the script. The scene at the gas station, and that's the scene that brings the. I don't know. Spoiler alert. The scene that brings the dog into the film is something that he came up with just on the spot in the middle of the shoot, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, there was just a random... Actually, he, no, it was kind of um, written, but we're not supposed to do it that day, not in that circumstance, and not uh, maybe just with the voices, not filmed. That's the... It was kind of existing, though, but we're just supposed to go home that day. But he was kind of doing some improvisation like that, allowing himself to just say, uh, I'm leaving house with the idea to just do sounds recording. And then he would say to Fabrice Aragno, the filmmaker, why do you take cameras with us? We don't need them. And then suddenly he wanted the camera to do something right now. So he was very happy to have them. So I want to make sure that we get More questions cameras. from the, the audience as well. But uh, Max, is somebody sort of, let's say, in the earlier stages of, of sort of learning how to, to write about film, how do these sort of more practical stories about the production itself inform or not inform, you know, the way that you might try to sort of grapple with a text like this or this particular film? I think you start with the text. I mean, I think you, you have to look at it, think about it, look at it again go to the production diaries, go to the author's intentions, the director's intentions, go to on-site on accounts of the filming for what you find relevant to, to accounting for what's in the text. Um, I think your job is in some way to kind of look what's up there and try to explain, in some sense, why it's up there. Not so much how it got up there, um, but why it's up there. And, I mean, I think you know, people have a lot of different opinions on this. I actually tend to think that you can find a lot of, of an answer to that, or a lot of answers to that, in simply what is up there. I think often movies tell you why they exist more than they often seem to. Um, not that they tell you everything. Um, and I think it's very helpful to go to, to go to this information and to have a, a sort of context, sort of context for where the movie came from, what kind of production circumstances the movie came out of, what kind of political circumstances the movie came out of, especially. In terms of details of the production, um, I tend to think like, you know, by what processes did this movie come to be is not the most interesting question. Um, but I didn't get anything. Sorry. <laughs> we'll explain later. Do we have questions in the audience? Yeah, on the way back. Just may, wait for the microphone because we're recording this. Two, two questions for the panel. One, is it entirely irrelevant or coincidental that in English the word dog spelled backwards is God? And second, um, what do you make of the comments about no Nobel Prize for music or art in the context of your own discussions? Is that 
just the throwaway line, or what, what do we make of that in your interpretation of the film? Well, I think that uh, uh, Godard plays with words, and he was obviously aware that dog spelled backwards is God, and you can make of it what you'd want. And secondly, I think that uh, Jean-Luc would love to win a Nobel Prize as, a, as an artist, not a filmmaker, but as an artist. That's my reading. I was thinking that, you know, it's for, for instance, it's, I just want to throw something in parenthetically because it's kind of hard not to address this without mentioning it. This film is full of references to his own other, fil to other films of his. Like the Solzhenitsyn line is in um, France Tour des Tours des Enfants, and it's also something he said to me when I met him. Um, there's a, there, are, there are lines that are from King Lear, you know, the bit about Abracadabra, Mao Zedong, um, uh, Che Guevara, um, the, the blank book from In Praise of Love, the gas station from Hail Mary. There are, like, there are little snippets of his other films here. Um, so, but one of the things that is important for Godard is the, the contrast between the, let's say, the essence of the art and the glory, the public image, the fame that it... Um, creates for itself and for the artist. And I think what he's trying to say is, you know, literature comes at you um, with its chest swelled out, so to speak. There's a kind of pride of place of literature in the arts. Language, adieu au langage, farewell to language. It's that kind of literary bravado, that literary pride that is for him part of the problem with bad movies. The movies that he would love are that he loves have more music and more art, the kinds of arts that do not have Nobel Prizes attached to them. I think one thing to say is also that it's a really cheeky movie, and it's a really funny movie. And Godard is always kind of throwing in little digs at his enemies or throwing in little like, points of self-aggrandizement into his movies. It's something he's been doing for a long time. When he, when he worked the Norman Mailer episodes into King Lear to some degree, um, so part of what makes it hard to read these movies sometimes is that they don't often function just like purely, maybe this goes back to what you were suggesting earlier, self-contained texts, but that they're always, in fact, pointing to kind of settling personal scores, maybe you could say. Yeah, Jim. Just wait for the mic so we can record. So thank you all for participating, and thank you for the festival for having this. This film I'd like you to talk about, though. Uh, this film, for me, is uh, quite spectacular. And uh, it, it, it moves forward uh, in, in, in his own creativity for me. Once I gave up trying to understand it, it was such a spectacle of, uh, of visual pleasure uh, and nature, of all things. And I'd like to know individually what you saw and see in this film that is different in Godard's journey. Do you want to? Well, for, uh, for me, I'm I'm sorry. I I think almost everything from Ici d'Allure, uh, which he made many years ago, to this is kind of a continuation of sort. He's an artist working in a particular medium with various modes at his disposal. For me, what's different about it is the use of depth of uh, 3D, which I think is a very exciting use, because it's, I think, a very subtle use. And also, the affection he shows for his dog, 
Roxy Mieville. I'm not, that, I'm not being facetious. I think that there is a tenderness there that has not been in his other work for me. That's, but I think in terms of style, other than the use of the depth, it's a, still a continuation of what he's been working on, his canvas for the last 20 years. Anything to add from before? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of love towards his dog, but also towards his uh, char characters that are representing maybe what is his uh, biggest fear to uh, to lose love and uh, and don't know what to do with it and deal the with the everyday life. I think he's uh, really scared with that. He's living by himself. You know, he's uh, really a lonely character. And talking about couple is the, and love is uh, a huge thing in his cinema. But I think what was new is that he was talking a lot about uh, social things, political things. I mean, with the uh, film socialist, uh, he, uh, he was uh, not that much into um, uh, love. And I think it's a movie really full of. Uh, his, uh, his uh, way of getting back to uh, everyday life. He's talking about society, about the world, but getting more and more closer to him. I think it's a really intimate movie to me. Nice. I want to second the, or possibly third, the reference to Roxy. Um, I think the use of animals in this movie is completely remarkable. Um, and I think maybe even more than the 3D, is what kind of brings the movie forward in Godard's career. I mean, it's to go back for a second to what the goodbye in the title is directed at, or what Godard is saying goodbye to, I think to some, to some degree, not completely, but to some degree, he's saying goodbye to humanity. I mean, if the movie started as a sort of a couple that learns to communicate by way of their dog, I think to some degree, by the end of the shooting, that or by the end of its you know, realization, it had become a film about a dog who almost abandons a couple, or a dog who almost abandons humanity. And I think, to some extent, Godard is siding with the dog. There's a couple of really kind of fascinating quotes in the movie or that he's, you know, he's pulling from. He's pulling from Rilke, he's pulling from Derrida and Heidegger, um, in which he suggests that it's only animals who have a kind of direct access to the world. Um, and that humans are in some sense turned away from the world and that this has to do with language. That language is a sort of barrier um, to a direct experience with or communion with the world. Um, so I think when he says that he's saying goodbye to language, what he really means to some degree is goodbye to a human perspective on the world. And hello possibly to a sort of perspective that identifies with a non-human animal and a non-human animal's relationship to the world. There's a really kind of striking scene where the dog is standing by the river and is listening to what the river is telling him. Um, and then there's a narration that creeps in saying, you know, and Roxy listened to the river and it told him, you know, that seems very new to me. I've never seen him do anything quite like that. Um, but and I think that's exactly right. It's a sort of hello to seeing. Hello to seeing with a different kind of, let's say, painterly cinematic eye. Um, 
still Godard's eye, though. Um, and it's, he's still, Godard is still the painter. I mean, that's part of the classicism of the film, the idea that you know, you, a still life is as much a human painting as a portrait of a person. A painting of a dog is as much a human painting as a painting of a crowd scene. You know, going back to the 70s, one of the things that Godard was doing in the uh, early to mid 70s, is he commissioned the creation of a camera. Uh, he worked with Jean-Pierre Bovialla, who is, of course, the founder of the company Aton, to create, and this is a, 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 a small, portable, lightweight, 35-millimeter camera that the way you could like hold it at, the, at arm's length, but it would take sync sound, and it was also small enough to put in the glove compartment of his car. He wanted to be able to drive around, basically, and use this camera the way a painter would use a paintbrush or a sketch pad. He wanted to be able to catch images on the wing, but he wanted it to be 35 millimeter. He wanted it to have the, let's say, the, the, the grandeur of the classical cinema that he loved. And it is not an accident that he achieves this finally with 3D. Even though he's using, for the most part, consumer grade video, if you look at the, look at where Godard comes from critically, the word depth, depth of field, has a very distinctive meaning in his critical origins. I mean, he's, you know, the, the filmmakers, the, the god, so to speak, of cinema when he was starting out was Orson Welles. And one of the things that Orson Welles did was to more or less invent the creative use of depth of field in the modern cinema. He came of age under André, not exactly under, but in intellectual connection with André Bazin, someone he was in constant contention with, but who nonetheless was somebody whose idea of what represents the, of, of the modern cinema is the cinema in depth, the, 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 the long take with focus running from front to back. And this is something that Godard has finally been able to achieve with this fairly simple, employment of, 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 of the technology that's readily available. And that's what one of the things I mean by classical, which is to say he's using these tools to conjure the grand line of cinema from you know, Wells through Hitchcock, but by means of very casual equipment. He's filming casually. It's mostly handheld. There's only one fantastic crane shot. And he's doing it to achieve images that have a, a coloristic undulation akin to the, the images of, of Monet. So we have time for, I'd say, one more question. So let's make it a really, really good one. No pressure or anything. Maybe somebody from, yeah, sure. Uh, just wait for the microphone. We want to make sure to get it on the record. I've been wondering for a very long time for for me, and I don't know the critical if this has been written about before, but Godard's, say, 60s films, maybe going up to early 70s, there was this joie de vivre, excitement, and and it, a lot of it paralleled his relationship with Anna Karenin. Uh, how do you pronounce her name? Karina. Um, and I was wondering if, and I know he sort of said when he was questioned at the time, like, oh, my, like, oh, that's boring to me now, I'm doing this other thing, and and um, and that's that. But it seemed almost psychologically like having to do with the end of his relationship. And I was just wondering what the expert view is as to why, because he said, I'm never really going back to those. And as far as I can tell, he hasn't quite. Yet he was such a master of it. And it was so wonderful and fresh. And he certainly could still do it, I think. Or I'm also asking, can he still do it? 
And just if you could discuss that change from that earlier films I to think, his... I like, think Richard should do that. He yeah, just wrote the book. It's, it's, a great, it's a great book, by the way. You should read Richard's book, but you talk about this. Oh, it's a terribly long story, and I, I kind of... Um, but no, I mean, no artist goes back. In short, you know, no, no artist goes back. It's not that he lost his technique. I mean, he went through many changes, political, personal. Um, the relationship with Anna Karina was not uh, exactly as joyful as you might be led to believe from seeing some of the elements in the films. Or rather, you know, you can also see the other side of those re relationship in the films. Um, the films in the mid-60s were films of crisis, were films of dissolution, uh, romantic, political, personal. Um, he had certain intellectual goals, and I don't mean that he, that he uh, wasn't able to fulfill at the time. Um, he was looking for a certain idea of cinema. It took him a very long time to begin to work it out. It was related to the possibility of working through the history of cinema by means of video. Um, it's true that the last 40 years of the career have a sort of unity, a sort of coherence under the sign of the conjunction of video and film, which is the retrospective that uh, Larry was talking about in the early 90s. Um, the ability to recreate a new grammar of cinema, um, and part of that new grammar also entails a new relationship to people in movies, um, whether the downplaying of, the, the, of, of character in favor of presences, even in our figures in a Bressonian sense, or as Max says here, the elimination of the human perspective altogether. And certainly one of the most interesting things in this film is I get the feeling that the characters melt into the film even more than in others of his films, and that the stories of the production, I mean, I'm always interested in the stories of production. I think that Godard's films are singularly permeable to the conditions of the, their production, but that in this particular case, they're, it's less permeable, that there's actually a little more closed-offness in this film than in some of his more recent films. Um, it's a long way of saying that he keeps on going forward, and if you look at the history of art, artists who go forward very often leave behind the people who were there with him at the beginning. You know, late Beethoven is more difficult than early Beethoven. You know, late Delacroix is flowers in vases. It's not heroic battle scenes. Um, Late period art has tends to have a certain uh, abstraction, a certain difficulty, and Godard's does too. It's just that for Godard, things got late early. Well, while we are out of time for this particular conversation, the conversation around this film will continue. It's opening in theaters here in only about a month or so, and I'd like to thank all of these remarkable panelists for being here.